Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. I believe God is doing something here this evening. Such evidence, such evidence of that here tonight. Praise the Lord. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse number 3. And uh, what a great presence of God Sunday. My Lord, a great, tremendous move of the Lord. He has met us here again this evening and He always meets us. That's the promise of His Word, but it's what we do in the presence of the Lord, how we respond in the presence of the Lord. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse number 3, the Bible says, And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah and Ohio. The sons of Abinadab drave the new cart. And they brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments, made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels, on coronets and on cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Can you imagine such a moment of great anticipation the ark of God is coming home it's a time of celebration and then in a moment's time just in a blink of an eye everything changes I want to speak for a little while tonight about the true value of man the true value of man amen I love you today Jesus and I thank you for the privilege to speak your word again I cannot do this without you and I ask you to stand with me tonight and allow your presence to touch my mind and my heart and strengthen all of us together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated if you'd like. There is something in, there is something in each of us that <clears throat> likes to assess value uh, and perhaps to value to the things we own, and we may categorize that in different ways. If you're going to buy something or if you're going to sell something, there is little doubt that at some point you're going to have to assess some value to that. You're going to have to figure out what it's worth. And, uh, and so if you're trying to sell something, for those who are fortunate enough to be able to do that, I, I buy high, sell lower, wind up giving it away. But <laughs> I couldn't sell dollar, uh, dollar bills for 50 cents a piece. That's how I feel most days, but but somebody's if you're going to sell something, somebody's ultimately going to ask you that question. What do you want for it? And and what they're really asking is what kind of value 
have you placed on this item? It's at that moment we're not talking about market value or anything. They're really asking you what's it worth to you. And, uh, and we've met people that certainly have had unrealistic values and set unrealistic values to items they wanted to sell. And um, you don't really get angry about that because it's what it's worth to them. That may be what it's worth to them. And so you can't do anything about that. And in their eyes, that's what it happens to be worth. It's not perhaps worth that to you. But while we've, also, all, while we've all met people that seem to assess things of much greater value than they truly are, there are also people that we have met that didn't place a lot of value on something that may have had much value. It's not uncommon at uh, estate sales and things of that nature to, uh, to find things that perhaps have true value that have fallen into the hands of someone that I don't mean unwittingly doesn't understand the value of that, but it just doesn't mean anything to them. To them, it's something to get off of their to-do list. I've got to get rid of these household items and and so for perhaps a set of furniture or a dining room set of some sort that parents or grandparents perhaps struggled in order to acquire, and they knew the true struggle of that a couple of generations later, have no idea the backstory. And so to them, it's just something to get out of the way and just move out of the way. And so they didn't really place a lot of value on something that may have had true value. And so the... The bottom line to all of that is that, that each of us decide the value of what we own or the value of what we're in control of. And at the end of the day, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but, but sometimes we uh, forget about the value of one another and the value of what somebody really means in our life. And uh, sadly, we have probably all lost people, lost them to death or maybe lost them to uh, a move or whatever it may have been and they're not as accessible in your life as they once were and we realize in a moment of time how much real value they had in our life. We didn't realize it at the time. We didn't mean to take advantage of it and we didn't really mean to discount it in our mind but it was in their absence that their value has truly, truly gone up. <clears throat> the, the cherished words and maybe the famed stories of grandparents or parents that, uh, that at one time we were kind of weary with hearing them repeat those stories again and again, but in, their, in the absence of their voice, those stories just begin to incrementally go up in value. And uh, so we realize in a moment, sometimes too late, how much, how much value there was. But when it comes to assessing a value to a soul or to a person or even to ourselves, how can you put a value on the soul of a man. Truly, what is the worth of a person? What is that? Recent studies reveal that if a, if a human being is reduced to simply uh, to put a value on its elements or its chemical makeup, you may be somewhat surprised that as recent as today, I looked this up, that, that the value of a human being is only about $160. If we were just, just to break it down into, into the chemical compositions and things of that nature, I'll make you feel a little bit better with this. 
perhaps that if you were to just farm out body parts, that $160 goes up to $45 million. Kind of makes you want to look at the person beside you. <laughs> You're sitting... <laughs> There's a lot of money represented here, <laughs> here tonight. I think some of you are thinking about that in, in wrong terms. There's great value that's sitting in millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of value that's sitting here. And so I, I think if it's, it's very possible sometimes to look at people and, and to see their scars and to and to allow those scars to discount them in our mind. But how does God see the true value of a man or of mankind? In our text, the Ark of the Covenant had been in the house of Abinadab for many, many years, for decades as a matter of fact. And it had been a long time since anyone in Israel had even really cared about the presence of God, shockingly. And I think a sad, very, very sad testimony to a nation and especially to a king since it represented the, the very presence of God himself. But during the entire reign of the king of Saul, or King Saul, he never once inquired of the ark. And just think about that, the power and the presence of God. If we, could, if we could put that into more modern terms that we would gather here in this, in this house for decades and never wonder about the presence of the Lord. Trying to do this within our own power, within our own might. What a sad lot we would be if that were the case. I think that says a lot about the character of Saul. But it was during a time of revival, a, a time of renewing and turning around that King David, uh, the Bible says, who was a man after his own heart, he realized that if, we, if, if there's ever anything we need we need the Ark of the Covenant back in place. We need the anointing of God back in our midst. And I would tell you tonight that no matter how many times we gather, no matter what the setting would be that we gather, the crowd large or small, there'll never be a time that we come together that we don't need the anointing of the Lord. Amen. The most simple, the most basic meeting, we need the anointing of the Lord, the anointing of God. Amen. We need that presence of God. Somebody needs to be asking when we walk in this house, where's the ark? We need to make sure the ark of the covenant, the power of God is in our midst. We need the presence of the Lord. And so David understands the need to get the ark of the covenant back in its rightful place. And so the scripture tells us that David enlists the, the help of some 30,000 footmen to make this transition. They're bringing the ark from the house of Abinadab back to Jerusalem. And so not only does David solicit the, uh, the, the manpower of 30,000 soldiers, but he begins to let the word get out among the people. This is a time of great celebration. We're bringing the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. It was indeed something to be celebrating. It was, it was a, a, it was a, a fight or it was a battle worth entering into. It was a journey worth making, if I could put it that way. And so it was a time of rejoicing. But the real problem, the root of the matter, I understand that perhaps we realize somewhat of the high points of the story. But the real root of the matter is the fact that there was the generation of David knew very, very little about how to treat the ark. 
about how to handle the ark, about how to move the ark. I realize that we're living in a day of, of, um, of digital Bibles and things of that nature, and I understand that. But, you know, growing up, many of us who only had a literal Bible were taught do's and don'ts about how you treat a Bible. You wouldn't just treat this book any old way. You wouldn't just leave it any old place. And, and uh, you would handle that with reverence because it is the word of God. And there's not, absolutely nothing wrong with that. I believe there's a merit to that. But it's good to have an understanding of how to handle the word of God and, and, to, and to how to be very careful with its content. I believe that to make a spiritual application of that, I feel a very sobering responsibility doing what I'm doing right now because I'm handling the Word of God. I don't mean I'm touching the book, but I'm handling the Word of God and I'm teaching hungry hearts. Amen. I'm teaching listening ears and I need to be very, very careful about how we handle the Word of God. Amen. I didn't want to ever, would never want to try to do this within my own power or within my own means. And so David didn't really understand, nor did David's generation really understand about how to treat the ark. And while it is true that the, that the, the Philistines didn't move the ark on a cart, uh, we have to also understand that uh, obviously they did that and God did not punish them for that, but we have to understand that they were unlearned. And they had, no, they had no knowledge as to how, as, as a matter of fact, they had not even a responsibility to the knowledge of how to handle, how to handle that better. But the, the nation of Israel did know, or they had the ability to know. And so uh, I think it's important to understand that we're going to be judged about what we, not just what we know, but what we had the ability to know. Amen. The, the nation of Israel did know better. They were taught better. The ark was never supposed to be carried on a cart and by oxen. It was always supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And so if you're reading through the Bible uh, this year, you are probably already into, the, into this portion of the Word of God where the law was given and this is how it is to be carried. This is how to be handled. It, handled. But they were, were so far removed from these laws that uh, they didn't understand. But that did not relieve them from the responsibility to know. Amen. It didn't, it didn't relieve them of their duty to know. And so some people think that God is just going to wink at ignorance. But the scripture says otherwise. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 29, the Bible says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device, and that the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men, all men everywhere to repent. And so we are responsible to know. And so for years, this golden chest, this piece of furniture uh, that is very, very well described in Scripture as to its artistic design, had been in the house of Abinadab. And now the two sons of Abinadab are are given charge to escort this treasure along with these 30,000 men of Israel. And uh, this was supposed to be a, a glad homecoming. This was supposed to be a day uh, that had been long overdue. And so as the scripture says of the ark and the, and, the, and the cart, as it was crossing the threshing floor, that the ark or the oxen stumbled, the cart moved, whatever the case may have been. And as an end result of this, 
it seemed as though that the ark would have fallen to the ground. And so Yuza reaches up and he just, as he would any other, it just seems very common, right? I mean, it just seems like the most common sense thing to do. It's what we would have done if we had not known better. It's how we would have responded had the law not been ingrained in us. And so here he is, he sticks his hand out to steady it. And so we have to kind of understand something to begin with. And I think there's a number of different ways perhaps to look at this. But here is a man that grew up seeing this box in his house. And it could be said that this piece of furniture had become so common until he thought nothing about putting his hands on it. And on that note, I would say that it is entirely possible for us to come into the house of God as we have tonight and the presence of the Lord. If we could have, if we could view the presence of the Lord in this building tonight, if we could see it, it wasn't as mystical as a wind. If we could see it, and yet we do not think anything about it, and we are not impressed by it or moved by it, uh, then it is often because we it has just become commonplace. It is just commonplace. But I don't ever want the presence of God to get common to me. Amen. I, I, I've said many times, and it's been repeated by others as well, but I don't ever want to lose the awe or the wonder of being in the presence of God. Amen. I, I, you know, uh, there's, as I often say, that there, there's no telling what some people had to get walk through just to be here tonight. And then the spirit of the Lord just comes in like a wind and that refreshing and you realize in a moment of time that it was worth every ounce of effort. It was worth everything that you had to push through. It was worth everything you had to move out of the way or step over the presence of the Lord. I'm not just talking about the, uh, I do appreciate the moving of God, but just to stand in his presence as we begin to sing his uh, songs unto his, unto his name and to feel the, wor- the unworthiness really of, of, of a God meeting with us. And then as the spirit of the Lord began to move, I'm, I'm just reminded of the words of David, what is man that thou art mindful of him. I I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I deserve the blessings of God. I've done nothing to earn them, amen, but I sure appreciate them. And when the Lord begins to move, when the Lord begins to move, I don't ever want to take that for granted. But Yusa had grown up seeing this box and it was just another piece of furniture to him. But as soon as he touched it, He lost his life. God smote him dead right in front of everybody that was watching, all of these foot soldiers and and all of the people that had gathered for this grand moment. And it scared David out of his mind, and and rightly so. And, and, and And I believe this one act sobered a nation to its very core. David didn't really know what to do at this moment, but they put the ark in, in another home and just said, we got to kind of, we got to shut this down until we figure out what to do. Now, there's little doubt as we read this account that all of us probably to some degree have felt, wow, that was a pretty radical thing. A man does what most any man would have done and God just strikes him and, and, and it seems as that as though that God may have been a little bit out of line, but he wasn't out of line at all. God had commanded in the book of Numbers that only the priest should touch the ark lest they'd fall under the penalty of death. And so this is not God having a bad day. 
This is not God trying to prove a point. This is not God flexing his eternal muscles. But, but Numbers 4 and, 4 and 15 says that the sons of Kohath, the sons of Kohath, they are the ones to bear the ark, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. Now, these were the people that were appointed to carry the ark. But even those appointed to carry the ark, and you know it was carried with rings and staves, and, and so really not, the hand of man never touched it, amen, but they were to carry the ark, but not to touch the ark. And so the sons of Kohath were not even allowed to do what Yuza has done. And so if God had allowed this to happen, then the ark would have just simply become another piece of furniture, but it was not then, and it is not now, amen. The power and the presence of God is not a common thing then, it should not be a common thing to us now, but I want to welcome the presence of the Lord. Amen. The very presence of God. Amen. This ark, this ark of the covenant stained and splattered with bloods of generations of sacrifices from this nation was not common, but it was holy, very holy. And so when Yuza reached out to touch it, he stepped out of bounds. All of Israel learned a very, very important lesson that day. Amen. They learned a very important lesson. This is what you don't do. You know, in the world of sports, um, for teams and for fans alike, stepping out of bounds is not uncommon. Sometimes people are celebrating a, a victory, celebrating perhaps a few points, only to realize in just a few moments that a penalty has been called and somebody is motioning them back and saying you're going to, uh, this didn't count, but we're going to bring this back all because somebody stepped out of bounds. And they weren't being careless sometimes, not being careless about that. Their efforts were sincere, but just one misstep, that's all that was needed. And, and certainly in a, in a world of replays, if somebody can just raise their hand, call and say, wait a minute, we want to review this, we want to go back Cameras are zoomed in, high definition cameras zooming in to the very moment that somebody stepped just enough out of bounds that it penalized that team and they lost their points, whatever it, it may have been. If it matters that much in a game of ball, how much more does it matter in the souls, the eternal souls of mankind? Amen. And so I believe this is the story behind the story in our text this evening is that we cannot afford to get spiritually complacent. And, and it's okay if we do, it's okay if we don't, here a little, there a little, but we need to be very intentional in what we're doing in the house of God. I don't ever want to get accustomed to the presence of God, so much so, or accustomed to the house of God, so much so, or accustomed to the things of God, so much so, that I feel the liberty to just handle them and treat them any old way. Amen. I want to, I don't ever want to forget what we're dealing with. When we open this book tonight, I want to understand that this is eternal words right here. Amen. The words here, there's life and there is death in this book. I don't ever want to forget that. Amen. I don't ever want to forget that because we're talking about eternity and we're dealing with a God that wants things done his way. And so God isn't beyond pointing to the place where we stepped out of bounds and, and God isn't beyond just calling it what it is. Amen. Amen. God is not beyond that. Paul writes to the Galatian church in Galatians 5 and 7. He says, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? 
This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you a little leaven, Paul says, leaveneth the whole lump. It doesn't take much to just change the dynamics of everything. Now, I'm not trying to raise the anxiety level to here tonight, but I believe that we understand or should understand that the power of God and the Spirit of God and the work of God is a very serious thing. We must be very careful because we're running a great race and I can't afford to step out of bounds. I can't afford to live my life to the wind and just aim at and hope to get close enough. But I say, Lord, help me to be very diligent. The word of the Lord teaches us. Amen. David said, order my steps in thy word. Amen. And let not any iniquity have dominion over me. But oh God, I pray that you would order my steps carefully because I don't want to step out of bounds. Amen. We need a little healthy fear, if I could say it that way, and respect for God and respect for his boundaries. Last Wednesday night, I spoke about Noah and how that the Spirit of God moved upon him to build an ark. Amen. The Spirit, the Word of the Lord says that he moved with fear. He moved with great reverence at the Word of God. He moved, but he didn't just move as a cowardly man moved, but he moved as a man in reverent fear. And the Bible says to the saving of his house. We're doing something here tonight that is of value. You didn't waste any time this evening. You didn't burn any gas in vain this evening. Amen. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't put something else off in vain here tonight to come to be in the presence of God. What we're doing is building a place. We are preparing a place for the Spirit of the Lord to move. And it is so critical that we get it right. Again, in our, in our reading, our early in the year reading, I would say, Moses stepped out of bounds. And because of that, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. It seems like a radical decision, doesn't it? God explicitly told him, speak to the rock. The second time, he said, speak to the rock. And the water is going to come out of that rock and you're going to be able to water not only the people, but you're going to have water for your flocks. But Moses was so angered and so frustrated. Moses was where all of us have been. And he was so frustrated until he picked up his rod and he struck the rock. Now in God's mercy, the water still flowed. And the flocks were watered and the people were watered. But God had to call Moses aside. And he said, because you have done this in the eyes of Israel, before the eyes of Israel, I cannot allow you to go in. All of those years of the murmuring and the complaining and all of those nights of just chatter, 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 chatter finally just drove into the heart of the man, Moses. And in his frustration, he stepped out of the will of God. And and of course, again, this was not God flexing muscles. This was not God overreacting, amen, but there was a reason that the rock was to be only struck one time. Suddenly, Moses is no longer a candidate to enter the promised land. It just seems so sudden and so rapid and it seems so curt and so abrupt. It's over, Moses. This is as far as you can go. We would have understood, perhaps, if we could read that story and we find Moses 
angered and we find Moses bitter and indifferent, but that's not the Moses that you find. Moses understood well that he had stepped outside of the word of God. And I think because of the attitude and the spirit of Moses, even in his, even in his error, that's why God said, I want to take you somewhere. I want to take you to Mount Pisgah. And I want you to see that this is not a pipe dream. You've not been walking in vain. And God revealed that to him. On the other hand, God told Saul, the king of Israel, to make sure the, all, all the Amalekites were destroyed. Crops, people, cattle, everything. He said, utterly destroy them. And you need to sit up and take note when the Bible talk, starts talking about utterly destroying something. But when Samuel came at the end of that battle, there was a specific sound that caught his attention. And Samuel looks at Saul and says, what is the sound of this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And Saul in his flesh stands up and says, well, you know, I I know that God told me to destroy everything, but I, I wanted to bring back something to offer the Lord. I wanted to do it my way. And because of this, God took the kingdom from him. Because the bottom line is we can't do things our way. And so we have to make our outlook God's outlook. And and the Bible says that of Saul that he stood head and shoulders taller than any man. I believe that Saul, uh, there's probably more than one implication here, but I believe that Saul was a natural leader. I believe he was an obvious choice to lead the nation of Israel in every sense of the word, but he stepped out of bounds. And when you step out of bounds, there has to be a call back. And so once a king, he's been greatly reduced in value. Once, once a man that was looked up to and songs were written about and praises were given, but now he was looked at in a different light. Perhaps this is what we must understand. It is the work and the plan of the enemy to get every one of us in this very situation to cause us to step out of bounds and out of the will of God. Amen. Beyond, amen, bringing great potential to a grinding halt. Amen. I am very, very thankful to be living in a dispensation of grace. I will tell you that. Amen. Thankfully, God's grace works in our lives in ways that we cannot even imagine and understand. I'm not just trying to be hypothetical tonight, but if we could only see what grace has done in our life today, today, how much grace God has exercised, how much grace has just been flowing in our life today. If we could just see that, it would probably, it would probably stop us. It would probably shock us to see what the Lord has just done in our lives today. Amen. But I still have a responsibility, even in my error. Amen. I need to be humble. Paul said, I need to die daily. The apostles taught us to die daily. I've got to do everything within my power to stay in bounds. Amen. There's not a person in this sanctuary and there's not a person that will ever hear this message that at some point has not stepped out of bounds. But aren't you thankful that you met the mercy of God? The mercy of God. (laughs) Amen. What the enemy had planned to destroy us, the master potter picked up those broken pieces and said, I I believe I can still do something with this. Marred by failure. But the Bible says of the potter in Jeremiah 18, he made it again another vessel as it seemed good to him to make it. Amen. I want to place my trust in him because he knows my destiny and you need to place your trust in him because he knows your destiny as well. 
mistakes that the enemy of our soul uses to destroy our confidence in ourselves, God still sees the true value of man. We may only see people in their mistakes. We may only see them in their folly. We may only take a snapshot in our mind of them at their worst, but God sees the real value of a man. God sees that value of a soul. And he, and so I got to place that, amen, the value of that back in the hand of the Lord and say, God, just do with this what you can. I, I don't know about how you have envisioned Jeremiah 18 and the story of the potter's wheel, but I'm going to tell you that I have pictured it, amen, not just as a lump of clay, but I have pictured it as me. I've not just pictured it as a chunk of dirt, but I have pictured that as me somehow trying to crawl my way and climb back onto that potter's wheel and say, God, I've been marred by the world that I live in, but can you just mold me and fashion me again? One of the most encouraging portions of that story to me was not that the clay was marred or not that the potter made something fresh again out of that, but the most encouraging portion of that passage to me is the fact that whatever happened, happened in the hand of the potter. (laughs) And so if you can just stay in the hand of the potter, that whatever happens, he can take care of that. He can take care of that. Praise God. And so we have true value not assumed value. We have a soul that's going to live forever somewhere. Real value. So you pass somebody on the sidewalk. You may assess them by what they're wearing. You pass somebody, you may assess them by what they're driving. You may assess them by how they look. But there's a real value to a person. A real value. We may value this one way up here and we may value this one way down here because that's just the humanity of us. We place value on things. Amen. I, like you, own things that are not probably worth a whole lot, them, the, the item itself, but, but where that item came from. I have some things that belong to my grandfather and so if somebody didn't know I could understand that being on a garage sale table for just a couple of dollars. But there's not a price tag that I could put on it because I know where it came from. And so there are some people who would take others and they would place them on a table and they would put this, assess this value or this value. But when the Lord looks at us, he says there's not a value I can place on this because I gave my whole life for that. The Lord sees the value of a soul. The book of Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28. Here's some very wise words that are shared. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Then he says, are not to spare a soul for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more value of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess, before, confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. So, The Lord is saying that 
we have great value in the eyes of God, whether we consider ourselves marred or not. <laughs> you see, it would be the devil's pleasure to use every mistake you've ever made against you right now. We're in the house of God. You did whatever you had to do tonight to be here. The presence of the Lord is here. And the enemy would do everything within his power to bring up every sordid thing you have ever done in your life. Amen. He will. And remind us of every poor decision we've ever made and devalue us in our own eyes until we don't have the ability hardly to raise our hand, much less our voice in praise and adoration to him. But we are in great of great value in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we do bear a responsibility to stay in bounds, of course, and our passion must be to run this race as hard and as earnestly as, <coughs> excuse me, as earnestly as possible. I'm not saying that we should sin just because grace, just because we have grace. Paul said, should we sin because grace abounds? He said, God forbid, God forbid that we think that's just a license to do that. But knowing that I have been saved by his grace and knowing that God's opinion of, of, of me, that's what matters most. And in his eyes, can I tell you tonight that you have great value, great value. The book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse number seven, and I'm, I'm going to close. Our musicians can stay where you are if you'd like. Revelation 19 and seven. The Bible says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to be misunderstood or, or what I'm about to say to be taken out of context because we're certainly not giving license or, or license to sin or error. I don't want to, I, I don't want to say that, but I, I do think there's some hard facts that we can't ignore. That at this marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's what John is writing about here in, in Revelation 19, I want us to just think about something, and please, please, please hear me that seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be a, quite an array of people. Seated at that table, you're going to find Adam, who was a part of the original sin in the Garden of Eden. I just mentioned him a moment ago, but seated here at the marriage supper of the Lamb, you're going to find Moses, who struck the rock when he should have spoke to the rock. You're going to find David who committed not only adultery with Bathsheba but murdered her husband. There's going to be the Apostle Paul who was first introduced to us as Saul who murdered Christians. Amen. Set fear into the heart of the New Testament church. There's going to be Simon Peter who at the very crucifixion of the Lord said, I don't know who he is. Amen. Sarah, when she was promised a child, laughed 
and lied. <laughs> she laughed and the angel said, why are you lying? I didn't laugh. She laughed and lied. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And I'll tell you where you'll find a pretty exhaustive list of these, and that's Hebrews 11. That writer calls them heroes. Put your finger on their life in Hebrews 11 and just go back. And if you just go back, you'll find a place in their life where it dips pretty low. I'm not, why I'm trying to be so careful is I'm not, I'm not trying to say just live like you want to live and everything's going to come out in the wash. What I'm trying to tell you tonight, that the Lord sees the true value of you. And if you think you've made mistakes larger than these that I'm talking about here tonight, then you are mistaken. Because God sees the true value. And by the grace of God, we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. I'm thankful. The Bible's talking about this bride that has prepared herself. Can I tell you, this bride is going to have plenty of scars. Amen. And it's past. There are plenty of scars represented right here this evening. But aren't you thankful for the word of God <coughs> and the promises of God that are new? Amen. Praise God. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? I've, I've mentioned, I think it's um, 2 Samuel 4 that first talks about Mephibosheth. Other passages of Scripture, maybe later in some other chapters there, and maybe around chapter 9. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.